HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Meet and Three is back. We're kicking off our fourth season and celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary with a very special episode about our home, Brooklyn. Roberta's was such an interesting place with such a strong gravitational pull. It attracted all these different groups. The neighborhood has changed a lot over the past decade from its culinary renaissance to the complicated implications of gentrification. I would say the majority of the people who are members of our co-op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are trying to change that. We're taking you on a journey that spans the birthplace of food radio to buzzy neighborhood pollinators to the transformative health journey of our borough president. That was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it. Subscribe to Meet in 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today I'm here with Tom Gamble, the owner and farmer from Gamble Family Vineyards in the Napa Valley. Tom, thank you so much for being here. It's great to see the other side of the continent. <laughs> I mean, is it like fun to leave Napa to come to New York City? Oh, it is. I mean, you gotta you gotta keep your mind expanded, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you always been in that area? Yes, I was born and raised in uh, Napa Valley, and I'm a third generation Napa Valley kid. Um, my grandfather first came to the valley around 1916. Wow. And um, you were born on a farm, is that right? Well, my mom made it to the hospital, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Barely. Uh, So, yeah, but I've lived all my life uh, on on a farm, except Mm -hmm. for some detours during college. Okay. 
So what kind of farm, um, when you were a kid, what kind of farm did your parents have? Well, it was really different in the Napa Valley back then. Uh, so we're talking uh, uh, the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And uh, grapes were not the primary agricultural crop. Actually, the number one crop in 1961 was beef cattle. Huh. And uh, then there was, so livestock really, beef, dairy, and then tree crops were uh, like prunes and walnuts were the uh, top crops in Napa Valley, followed by grapes. And so the wine industry was really in a nascent uh, position uh, back then. Hmm. So the first decade of my life, it was just spent... uh, uh, moving irrigation pipe and and being around uh, livestock and mm. wild animals. Hmm. So what what changed in Napa? Like what led to the region becoming so much of a grape growing region? Economic necessity, uh, but it was it was also a passion the passion of a community uh, to to stay in agriculture. Uh, we had seen what had happened to what we now call uh, Silicon Valley. It was the Santa Clara mm-hmm. Valley, the most uh, fertile uh, farmland in California, which has lots of fertile farmland, so that's quite the statement. Mm. And a lot of things happened starting in 1958 when uh, a regional government said that Napa County uh, must have one million people living in it by uh, the year 1980. And uh, people didn't like that. Um, uh, so, some traction started to happen but uh, to, to challenge it, but it didn't really gain a lot of steam until 1966 when they changed, uh, the state changed the way properties were taxed. Developers had not been able to uh, force farmers to sell so they could uh, build uh, more buildings and pave stuff over. Mm. And so uh, under the guise of some sort of uh, progressive idea, they decided that uh, you should pay property taxes based upon uh, the highest and best use or the most intensive use, which is always paving something over. Uh, You can always make more money building high rises than farming, even grapes. Right. But um, so they passed that law, but some, there were some smart guy had, uh, put a little uh, time bomb in there, and it said, "Well, if you have an agricultural zoning district, uh, you can then uh, tax at uh, the value of the product coming off the property, um, uh, and basically keep the old tax rate." It didn't quite work out that way, but th- that's what happened. So some. Um, uh, uh, Dorothy Erskine was uh, a lady who had witnessed the urbanization of the San Francisco Peninsula, and she had moved up there. So she rallied farmers. She rallied uh, my mom. She rallied uh, uh, legislators. Legislators. There was mm-hmm. a big fight, but in the end, in 1968, the Ag Preserve was formed by a unanimous vote of the County Board of Supervisors. Mm-hmm. So we created the first agricultural preserve in the Napa Valley. And that gave us time to uh, create a successful uh, wine industry. Without that, I do not know that we would have been successful. 
uh, I think that the development pressures would have been too hard, and we might have a little vineyard here or there, but it wouldn't be uh, uh, the, the, the Napa Valley that we know today. Right. That, I mean, that's so interesting. I didn't really know that history at all. Um, and But so the Napa Valley Agricultural Preserve, that, that applies to any kind of agriculture, right? Oh, yeah. You yeah. could... Um, and uh, and you you can uh, you could uh, still have livestock. There's still some uh, uh, specialty farms in Napa. In fact, they're growing on a small scale, but they are definitely going growing. And there are uh, there are definitely uh, uh, restaurant gardens being grown and some uh, heritage fig trees, for example. Mm. And uh, we had a. Uh, we had a, uh, a small uh, truck a farm for uh, uh, the local and a box program back in the 80s. And, uh, but then we just had to focus on, uh, on, on the grapes ultimately. Right. So it exists, but it be- comes down to economics. And everything's really, really expensive in California and particularly in Napa Valley. And, and so grapes have, have been uh, dominant. Now, we're going to have... An, uh, something that was just legalized in California. Uh, there's going to be some uh, regulations that allow a very small amount of cannabis to be grown. Mm. That hasn't taken effect yet, and I don't know when it will. But I don't see it overcoming uh, grapes. It'll just be a nice uh, thing to help diversify uh, agriculture. Right. Another thing that people don't know about Napa is it's about 500,000 acres, but just less than 50,000 acres are planted in grapes. The rest is watershed and open space. At least 100,000, I think it's more, um, is permanently protected open water space, open space and watershed. And then the rest is uh, rangeland, and um, and uh, there is a growing uh, 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 specialty livestock program too. That's yeah. really going to be the future for the rest of, of the valley, I think, where it's not great uh, growing land, but it's great grazing land. Right. Well, and I mean, everything that you just said just made me think, you know, I love wine, and I'm so glad that you're growing grapes and making yeah. wine. <laughs> um, to be clear, I'm upfront, say that. Um, but it's kind of crazy. So you, this agricultural preserve was established, but what you're saying is the economics still don't make sense to grow food. Essentially, to raise, it's way easier to make money um, growing grapes and making wine. And so a lot of people switch to that from yeah. livestock. And so that's kind of a crazy thing when you think about it, right? Like, well, I, 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 don't, I don't know if it's crazy. Uh, wine is an agricultural product. It's, right. it's not something you eat, but it's something that complements a life, and it keeps farmers in farming. Right. And, and who knows what will happen. There was a grape and wine industry boom in the 19th century, and then with uh, phylloxera, it went out of vogue, and other agricultural products came in, and then... And then there was another, uh, in the very late 19th century and early 20th century, there was another wine boom. And in fact, there are warehouses uh, here in Brooklyn just for receiving bulk wine from Napa Valley. Hmm. And then the uh, prohibition came and then other agriculture came in. But if you want to, pres- but, but moving forward, if you want to preserve the land, there has to be some sort of sustainability um, and it's it's and 
I go back to the three P's, the people, planet, and profits. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to continue to reinvest in the land, and you can't do that if you're not making any money. But if you get too greedy and you're taking too much money and you're not reinvesting in the land, then the planet suffers. And, and, uh, And it's not... It's not necessarily cool for uh, the people or uh, that are your neighbors. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the question of why it's not economically feasible to raise, raise livestock is a whole other one that we would have to have well, a whole other show for, that, Oh, yeah, and that's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is a world that's going to change radically in the next 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in, in your trajectory, so you were growing up on a farm. Um, when did you personally get into growing grapes? Um, let me see. Uh, as a kid, I was messing around in, in, in the vineyards and I certainly harvested a lot of grapes when I was a little kid, but, and my mom said sometimes my diapers would be full of grapes. Uh, <laughs> so maybe that's too much information, but the, uh, so, uh, cause there were little plots of vineyards okay. around where we were. And, and, um, so I guess professionally, I started harvesting grapes in about um, 81, the early 80s, because okay. uh, when I was still going to uh, UC Davis, I started a farming company, and a few of us were able to scratch up just enough money to buy this messed up hops field uh, that had been abandoned, because hops, and this was in the Sonoma County, and hops used to be really big in Sonoma mm. County, and so we, we uh, cleared out all the uh, hop trellises and ultimately planted uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and this was in the Russian River Valley. Mm. So um, we uh, that was my first professional farming venture, right. uh, and doing something outside the family ag business. Okay, and then when did you move to Gamble? When did Gamble actually launch? Well, I've been farming uh, grapes since the early '80s, and um, then I added the wine portfolio for sustainability reasons uh, and, and some passion uh, for it uh, in in 2000 and I was looking at the trajectory of land prices and I'm thinking well I can be very comfortable and, and uh, Colette can be very that's my wife <laughs> uh, can be very comfortable uh, uh, growing grapes but if something goes south and, and grape, the grape market while it's very valuable is also cyclical right? and so and and the kids were coming along, uh, um, uh, my nieces and nephews, and they uh, some of them thought tractors were cool, but others did not. But they all seemed to find, especially as they've gotten older, seemed to find that wine uh, and the wine business may attract them more because there's more things you can do versus mm-hmm. uh, just uh, uh, physically make the wine or physically pick the grapes, and. So I guess I'm getting ahead of myself in that story. So I was looking at the sustainability of owning the land uh, through thick and thin and vertical integration and right. trying to bring a product to market uh, would help us uh, put another leg on the stool of sustainability, at least on the economic side. Mm-hmm. And so that's the adventure I've been on since 2000. And then uh, we started with some partners and then uh Colette and I went out on our own in 2005. Mm. So you're, you know, I, I read that you say you're a farmer first. Mm-hmm. Are you, do you also make the wine? 
No, I'm on the Farmer 12-step program. I'm learning. I've admitted a problem. I'm learning to delegate. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I do have a winemaker. His name's Jim Close. He comes from an urban environment called London. And uh, he, he trained in France. And we have kind of the same outlook on how we want our wines to taste and that they need to be varietally distinct and, and talk about the place they come from. And so uh, we hit it off, and uh, he's, he's made every bottle. Amazing. So what does the vineyard look like now? Like, what are you growing? What kind of wines are you making? Oh, what kind of grapes are we mm-hmm. growing? Well, we grow uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, Petit Verdot, Petit Syrah, um, I have a few vines of Syrah left, and then Sauvignon Blanc is the only uh, white variety um, that I'm currently growing. The vineyards are, um, we now have 175 acres that we farm uh, outside the legacy piece that I grew up on that's uh, leased out mm. uh, these days. Uh which is a story of itself. So uh, we grow those grapes. We sell most of those grapes. Ah. So uh, we're, we're um, I would say, a medium-sized farmer and a small winemaker. Mm. So it's another leg of sustainability where um, I forgot to go to Wall Street or Silicon Valley and, and Me too. M- making a killing. <laughs> but uh, we're, lo- we're, <laughs> we're loving life now, huh? Right. Uh, so the... Uh, so I'm able to sell grapes um, and and keep the cash flow going and keep uh, making wine is a capital intensive project and uh, it, it that 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 cash flow helps me continue to uh, build a, a sustainable brand. If I was in it for the short term and not thinking uh, seven generations down the line, maybe I'm not thinking quite that far, but that's the idea. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I would be I would be doing things way differently just to uh, jack up returns early versus uh, trying to build a sustainable return. Right. What about um, challenges that you face as a grape farmer in Napa? Um, what are some of the biggest ones? And I mean, we're talking a lot about economics, but I'm kind of interested too in just the actual challenges of, of farming there, like you know, water potentially or sort of the logistical challenges the the we are blessed in in napa and i would say sonoma too that to be in one of the sweet spots of the world for growing grapes Mm. and in a way it, it has the least number of environmental challenges i was extremely fortunate to work a, a little bit in italy and france and in their great uh wine growing regions and they have uh more environmental challenges, weather challenges. Okay. I'm not going to say environmental. And so the the challenges that we have, uh, grapes are a uh, are a drought tolerant crop. They don't need a lot of water. When we were growing hay crops in the '60s, alfalfa can use three acre feet of water uh, per acre. We um, at the most, and most of the water would be used for frost protection. Mm-hmm and would be about a quarter of an acre foot. And it's more like, uh, and I would say that uh, water usage is more like one-tenth of an acre foot. So uh, extremely uh, uh, 
small and we're um, becoming more and more sophisticated with our rootstocks mm. that uh, and you need the rootstock because of the underground uh, bugs that will uh, eat uh, the vinifera uh, grapevine uh, phylloxera being the most famous and so over the decades uh, I'm experimenting with some brand new stuff that is just coming out of UC Davis to uh, further that mm. and um, too soon to tell the results some will work and some will and, you know I'll be hitting my forehead like Homer Simpson or something <laughs> and saying dope and so anyway that water and we did something to make sure that water is a community resource mm. to make sure that uh, one farmer didn't hog it all or what we were really concerned about because we are blessed with a good groundwater table that has been protected by some of our enlightened land use policies we went even further and said you can only use one acre foot per acre uh, per year maximum way more than we need mm. and then you cannot sell that groundwater so we took the economic incentive of, of of people saying it's easier just to sell the water off, and so that has worked extremely well. Not perfectly. There are some more droughty areas and with less of a water table, but for the most part, Napa Valley's main aquifer is in extremely good shape, and it's because of some enlightened policies uh, that were passed. So water isn't the biggest issue. Now, if you're that one place that has a problem, you would disagree with me, mm. but I'm talking as a community at large. And then um, frost protection is, frost is one of the weather uh, uh, things we have to watch out for. And um, the uh, so the buds uh, come out in the springtime and then mm -hmm. you can have a cold snap and that can hit uh, the buds and uh, reduce your crop uh, for the season uh, significantly so and uh, by either uh, freezing the bud off or burning it or by by weakening uh, that bud enough and and the baby fruit inside that it shatters when it's older hmm. and so um, to combat that we have wind machines and uh, to stir the air to keep it moving Interesting. So that works in most cases. In fact, more people are going are, are reinstalling wind machines, and they're not very loud. Uh, used World War II airplane motors anymore. They're very uh, relatively quiet. They run on propane versus diesel, and mm. um, and 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 there's also some uh, solar components to the newer ones down to keep the batteries charged. Mm. And there's also, and then that'll work down to about 28 degrees, and then you go to uh, water uh, your sprinklers. But more and more people don't, want, especially in the later season, like now, don't want to use uh, water for frost protection unless they absolutely have to. How does water uh, provide frost protection? <laughs> that is a very, very good question, and it's counterintuitive. Yeah, it doesn't seem to make any sense. <laughs> okay, so how do how how does the uh, the stereotype of of an Eskimo uh, stay warm? They build ice around them and mm. make an igloo. So the water freezes at thirty two degrees, and then inside uh, it's uh, it, it's it, it's an insulator, hmm. and so it's staying at thirty two degrees. And then the actual process of freezing and thawing 
creates uh, 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 BTUs in them in and of in itself of that process. So wow. the uh, so we, we we have we have little igloos around our baby grapes. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much wine somebody drank to figure that one out. Right. <laughs> They're the ones on on, on the on the. That got passing grades in in college. <laughs> um, okay, well, on that note, we actually need to take a quick break uh, for a word from a sponsor. Um, when we come back, I want to ask you a little bit more about um, these enlightened land use policies that you're talking about. Cool. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average $3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The Virtual Agritourism Conference will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience anytime on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources, and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by Escape Maker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available for purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2019 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Tom Gamble from Gamble Family Vineyards. Um, we've been talking about all kinds of all kinds of things related to farming and wine, um, which is really fun. You know, I just just to, just to put that out there. You know, I did mention I liked wine earlier, and we don't get to talk about wine much on The Farm Report, so it's a nice uh, change of pace for sure. It's still farming, and you're still right. producing a product, and you have all the same land use issues and concerns, and yeah, of uh, any other crop. Well, and I think that's actually why I was excited to have you on because. It's maybe something you think when people drink it, you think less about where it came from or how it was produced because it doesn't feel as much like an agricultural product for some reason, you know, maybe. I, I don't know. I think people think more about, oh, I should know how my food was produced, but maybe don't. Yeah, I thought that's what this whole uh, show was about. Right, exactly. <laughs> so let's get schooled. <laughs> So on that note, um, so you were talking a little bit of, uh, before the break about some enlightened land use policies, you were calling them, um, which is a really interesting um, phrase in itself. Um, I don't know if this is what you meant, but one thing I wanted to ask you about was um, the Napa Green Certified um, mm-hmm. Program. I think you were, were you involved in, in creating it? Is that right? Or Yes, I was sitting at the table uh, when we, we began that effort for the Napa Green certification and uh, it, it, it's parallel uh, certification fish-friendly uh, farming. Oh, so those were created at the same time? Fish-friendly fra- farming came uh, a little earlier and, and the, the creative process behind fish-friendly actually started in, in the Sonoma-Mendocino area and then came uh, to Napa. 
And there, just like there are various organic certifications, there are these uh, different uh, the, these uh, conservation uh, certifications as well. And uh, the genesis behind both of these were to um, to go beyond organic and start thinking about your impacts off the farm. Because organic, at least at the time, and still to a certain extent this day, doesn't take it quite to the level that, uh, that uh, these do. So you can see it almost as an add-on, if you would. And um, so, and I think that in just like different organic certifications, you know, there's different administrations for both. And some people feel more comfortable with the vibe of uh, an, one group of administrators mm-hmm. than another. And the key is just to keep moving forward, keep making progress, because we got to go beyond sustainability, which I think I mentioned before, and talk about regeneration and regenerative ag. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and that kind of stuff floats my boat. Otherwise, uh, you're doing the same old thing all the time. Right. Can you even... <clears throat> so when you say, like, it, it's, it takes it off the farm more than something like organic does, what do you mean? Can you give me an example of that? Yes, I can. So fish-friendly farming is... Uh, is, is And Napa Green, one of their biggest things is to think about what's happening to your waterways. And even if mm. you don't have a stream bordering your particular farm... It, it, it's just like those little uh, blue fish that are stenciled next to the storm drain in the cities. Um, it Everything leads to a body of water. So how do you keep even fine sediment? Even uh, uh, the most conscientious farmer can always try to figure out how to do better with keeping uh, uh, the sediment, hence his dirt, mm. on his on his land. That's why you're seeing no-till ag uh, become more and more prevalent, not only in uh, the wine business and grape growing, but so one of the organic doesn't require permanent cover crop, mm-hmm. but uh, to be f- fish friendly uh, certified, that is one of the components, and Napa Green as well. And there are allowances um, and uh, some flexibility for when you have to remove a vineyard, you may have to remove your permanent cover crop, but then you have to go back in almost immediately uh, with a permanent cover crop. And the there's a lot of uh, cool things about a uh, permanent cover crop as you get to learn about it. It's an ecosystem of its own. It's creating uh, people drive through um, Napa Valley might criticize, well, uh, you've got a monoculture in Napa, and I would challenge that by saying, well, really, no, we don't. We only have 9 to 10% planted in grapes, and then you have the permanent cover crop. And the permanent cover crop is creating an ecosystem that's storing uh, one to two tons of carbon per acre uh, on top of the, I don't know, f- five to seven more tons per acre for the vines. So then, and then there's the whole ecosystem from mycorrhiza that's growing on the roots that's also very uh, 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 copacetic with uh, the vines as well. And it's also competing a little bit with the vines. A certain amount of struggle makes for a better grape. And so you start from the microscopic, and then you end up even with more earthworms, more bugs, and hopefully good bugs, and all the way up to subterranean creatures like my frenemy, the gopher. 
And, <laughs> but, but, then, but then Napa Green and Fish Farm, they're also talking about habitat in and around the vineyard. Uh, so on the streams, there's a huge river restoration project in Napa going back, uh, or uh, going back almost 20 years now. And so we have the most environmentally intact uh, uh, river uh, system in the Bay Area, for sure. Huh. And it is a wildlife corridor, and there's bobcats and mountain lions and bears. Uh, in the further reaches, oh, there's a bobcat in my vineyard. She had two little babies. Oh, my God. Uh, last year, yeah. Uh, we, I don't know if you should tell people that. They might, they might be scared. <laughs> no, they're cute. They're, they're cute. If they growl at you, okay. run away. <laughs> yeah, I, I, this, this is an oral show, but uh, I have uh, my trail cams caught... Uh, caught uh the mom with the two babies wow. running behind it so yeah it's, it's cute and the beavers had come back and we planted all these trees and then the beavers start chopping them down mm-hmm. so you're starting to think well how am i going to deal with this am i going to get bill burt murray on them like in caddyshack or something but uh, no you figure it out the cool thing is is you have these kind of problems versus having a denuded waterway right you have uh, uh stream banks eroding you have invasive species moving in so invasive species cleanup uh getting back to uh the green cert and the fish family um getting rid of invasive species which and and planting uh, natural species again which happen for the most part not always to be better environment to grow grapes in because they harbor uh, uh, fewer bad bugs mm. than uh, invasive species and typically suck up less water. Mm. Um, so uh, it so that and and simple things like putting in uh, raptor perches and owl boxes and birdhouses, simple little things like that. That. Um, if you have an incentive for people to do it, like these certification programs, you can then start showing uh, incremental change. And, and then it, and you can educate the public that uh, you're doing the right thing for the environment. You can educate the regulators who love to see these uh, group things happening because um, everybody wants a cleaner world. And the, the debate is how you get there. Is it through regulation or is it through uh, incentive? And uh, I don't know about you, but I don't like being told what to do. And, uh, and, uh, and, and so if you can incentivize people and inspire them to do the right thing, and, and then you can work hand-in-hand hand with regulator, regulatory authorities and bring all the parties together... I mean, we're not all sing, sitting around the campfire singing kumbaya, but it's a great step forward to uh, keep a good thing going and give back. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it comes down to that sustainability and of, of you have to give back to the land to keep going and, and then taking it to this where we are now to this regenerative thing. Right. The good ideas of the past, the green revolution, the first green revolution was actually the use of, uh, was post-World War II, and the use of all the nasty chemicals we're trying to get away from now. Right. Yeah, I've actually, we, we were just talking about uh, the green revolution here at HRN recently. <laughs> so, um, I think there's maybe a... Hopefully, a little bit of a new one um, that is. Oh no, there's more a than a little bit of a, No, there's a little a, bit different from the first one. Um, oh, it, and you know we're f- far along the path, and we're challenging ourselves. Like I, I did not use lightly thinking beyond organic. Okay, 
how do we take the next step? And it's there's always going to be another step. Right. And how do we uh, how do we keep the critters happy? How do we keep the farmers happy? How do we keep uh, our neighbors happy? The, the 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 community at large that wants to share our bounty, but wants to share our bounty knowing that it's it's raised correctly and grown correctly. Um, and that's always evolving, and um, especially since World War II, every generation has become more sophisticated and had a more creative palette uh, than the previous generation. And so that's been an evolution that allows us to really do this. Right. I want to, um, sorry, I want to go back for a second to the, the permanent cover crop thing. Yeah, it's just so yeah. fascinating to me. Um, this might be kind of sound silly, but I like I'm trying to picture what you mean by permanent. So is it... Is it actually growing with the vines, like oh, year yeah. round? Yeah. So yeah. Huh. So so you can have an annual cover crop, and and which might be uh, depending on what your soil needs, high in nitrogen or high in some sort of organic matter. But you till that in. Right. And tilling of soil is actually a sterilization. Yeah. Uh, of, of soil, and it also disrupts the gophers' uh, runs and all that kind of stuff, at least for a little while. Um, I keep coming back for that because I do have a little too much of a caddyshack talking about golfers, <laughs> but um, the 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 permanent cover crop is is also an ongoing experiment in what's right for the soils. I don't I w- I wouldn't say anything's and planting something is always good, but then you start fine tuning it and you start geeking out over it. And mm. What blend of grasses do I want? Do we need to have some clovers in in this? Do uh, uh, my wife wants some pretty flowers as well, um, at least uh, blooming for part of the season, and that's all cool. And then you go, and then you, and then maybe sometimes you do have to change it out because you've either taken down the vigor of the uh, area too much, um, at least for the vines to grow, and it's too competitive, and so you have to rethink it, or you've planted something that. Everybody, including uh, the, the smart kids at UC Davis, thought this is going to be a really good cover crop. But then it turns out there's a bug that's transmitting some disease that you never thought about. Mm. And so, okay, we can't use that plant anymore. And then so you're, you're constantly uh, uh, thinking about it and, and changing it. And just like a permanent cover crop, like a lawn or a golf course or something, it has to be aerated every once in a while. So you have these little spiky things that you can uh, uh, wheel behind your tractor and and, and aerate the soil mm. a little bit. But but the, the bottom line benefits are enormous. Mm. So if... Um, so it, I mean, just from uh, the capture of fine sentiment to uh, the the uh, the amazing microbial right. wildlife that is starting uh, that can start to happen and help nourish your vines, yeah. and really a goal for us in the high end of the wine world, and that's where we have to be. We can't be van ordinaire because everything costs too much in Napa, and. Um, the so for quality we and and we want to keep our vines as healthy as possible and living as long as possible and vines can live a super long time i mean they're going to live a hundred years and uh at at some point in their lives usually in their 20s uh the vines uh, are going to uh start start dropping their yield but if the quality stays up then uh, then you will keep those vines in the ground. 
and if one or two vines die, then you replace them. It's better to replace vines one by one than having a wholesale replant. But if you're a big commercial operation, um, the economic imperative is to rip everything out between 20 and 30 and start all over again. Mm. But if you can start, um, uh, and, and I'm not the only guy, but we touch our vines probably 11 times by hand every year. So that's, uh, and it's consolidated in, in certain months, but that's a pass almost every every month to, mm. to touch uh, the vines, to take care of them. And you start understanding the peculiarities of, if not every vine, then um, a group of vines. Yeah. And the more difficult the site, uh, the, the more... Uh, uh, you, the more struggles a vine may have, and and so we give them a lot of TLC. So when you see the price of a Napa Valley wine, it's because of that TLC. Mm. Well, is are a lot of these practices you're talking about that you follow that are part of Napa Green and fish friendly farming? Are they pretty common in Napa at this point? They're they're, be, they're becoming more and more common. Um, uh, I was talking about the vibe of each group. Mm. Farmers started uh, fish-friendly farming uh, kind of on a multi-county basis. And then uh, Napa Green is run by uh, the Napa Valley Vintners Association. And Napa, and we're certified under both. Uh, and I, I was involved in both. And the, the thing I think, the, the key takeaway for the cynics out there is that they are third-party vetted as mm-hmm. well. So we just went through our, our, our biannual checkup. And what's really cool about that is that the, the experts who do that will give you ideas. Okay, you're kind of falling short here. Mm. Uh, you're doing really well over here. Have you thought about X, Y, and Z? And the other Napa Green uh, thing uh, that is different than fish family farming is it looks at energy cost mm. and and how where's your energy coming from? How are you using your energy? How can you reduce it? Hmm. And so uh, uh, and that can come in many ways, but uh, I wandered off the question. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Is that is Napa Green? Um, is that an actual like uh, label that's on the bottle? You can put it on your bottle okay. if you decide to do it. Uh, if there's do been, you? S- uh, we have not yet because there have been some challenges to that from mm-hmm. the uh, the higher up, which is in our case the TTB. So what is that? TTB? Oh, uh, the uh, it is the federal agency that regulates wine labels. Oh, interesting. And so we're kind of getting through that. And we've thought about it for our paper labels, but we haven't quite uh, pulled the trigger on it yet. Mm. Um, when we make some changes to our pa- paper labels for other reasons, maybe we'll add it to it. And the reason is, is, is it's just the time and effort and cost and to, to change the label. So yeah. when you want to do it, you want to do it once, again, to be uh, effective. So um, how many people are in Fish Friendly and... Uh, Napa Green, it is well over 50%, and the vintners are pushing everybody who is a member to be um, uh, certified Napa Green. And there is a goal to get every vineyard certified uh, voluntarily. Um, 
and it'll never be a regulatory approach. I think it'll always be a, a voluntary thing. So there'll be people who, who don't join, but it's a huge movement um, uh, in, in Napa. Mm. Do any of the, the practices that you're talking about that are more, you're doing them for the ecological benefit, the environmental benefit, like the permanent cover crops, things like that. Do any of those affect the actual character of the wine? Yes, uh, emphatically. So the uh, to get back to our favorite uh, topic, the cover crop, mm-hmm. uh, cover crop uh, will what you're trying to do with a a grapevine is actually limit its yield, versus a lot of uh, other crops you're trying to maximize the mm-hmm. yield. You're trying to limit its yield. So how do you do that? You do it with competition. Uh, for uh, the nutrients in the soil. It's going to be a big thing because we had lots of rain this year, so they're going to grow profusely and we'll be doing more uh, trimming of the vines this year. But if you have a good cover crop, that's helping soak up excess uh, water. It's uh, creating competition for uh, the nutrients. And uh, I don't know, you'll have some celestial singing or something when you have perfect balance and perfect <laughs> harmony but but in, until then you just have us mere humans uh trying to figure it out and so by creating that competition you're uh cr- creating more uh, uh intensity in the remaining grapes mm. and in in some years like this year we may leave a few more grapes on the vine because there's going to be more energy available just because of the profuse uh year but uh, of water but if there was less and it was more of a normal rainfall year, uh, we may uh, trim more grapes off to create more intensity in the remaining fruit. Mm. And so we want smallish clusters relative to what the natural size is. With uh, and, and what you end up with smaller berries and smaller clusters is a more intense flavor. Yeah. I mean, everybody's gone to the store and bought some uh, bland tasting juiced up piece of fruit that's mm-hmm. really giant in size and then you have oh my god and you're putting your hand in front of your mouth because you're still chewing on some delicious piece of produce right. that has been uh, uh, handcrafted and it's struggled a little bit and it's 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 more right sized I guess you could say mm-hmm. so it's the same idea yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think we unfortunately have to wrap up, but um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm just getting warmed up. <laughs> Sorry. But thank you so much. <laughs> um, where can people um, find your wines? That's probably a, maybe a hard question to answer. but uh, GambleFamilyVineyards.com. Okay. GambleFamilyVineyards.com. <laughs> and uh, we are in um, beginning to have a presence in the uh, New York area in both uh, restaurants and and in uh, some wine shops. Great. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.